Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. So when I asked a brief questionnaire of you, just to get to know you a little bit before I get to see you face to face, you talk about passion that gets you out of bed in the morning and drives you through life. Mm -hmm. And you say that style is the way that you get things done. So the intersection of the two is the indicator of success. So I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, how does one even create the intersection? And part two, how do you sustain it coming off the last two years? We'd love to hear your version of what you're doing. Ooh, yeah, let's play hardball right out of the gate. Absolutely. So we in the West, especially those in English-speaking countries, we have a word called purpose. And purpose is really that intersection. But there are other countries and other cultures that do a better job of describing how this intersection occurs. The French call it the raison d'etre, a reason for being. But the Japanese, I think, have really nailed it with this term called ikigai, which is a model of living, a model of being that allows us to recalibrate the different components of our life, whether that be our employment and our working lives, with our vocations, our family life, the way we volunteer, the way we see ourselves. And this concept of Ikigai has really been well well researched at this point. And I do think it's one of the reasons why the Japanese managed to live as long as they do and managed to have as great social cohesion as they've been able to achieve. It certainly doesn't hurt that they're a, a monoculture society for the most part. But how do we get to it here? You have to be really deliberate because... These countries that we live in are highly competitive, highly market-driven. We need to be focused on earning first so that we can live, not the other way around. So being deliberate about approaching this, I think certainly for me it was midlife, was the wake-up call that I could spend another 25, 30 years in a job that was just sustaining me in terms of a salary or I could walk away with the money that I had saved and reinvested in myself in a future that I saw for me and for other people, not what another corporation expected from me. Not all people have my good fortune. Not everyone necessarily can apply this to their day-to-day -day lives. But it is a growing possibility for more and more of us these days because of the demographic realities that we're heading into. So I've started sketching my second book and a lot of it focused on going past the demographics. That's what the super age is about. These intersecting demographics of decreasing birth rates, which are happening virtually in every corner of the globe, and then increased longevity, which is happening in virtually every corner of the globe. Now, obviously, there's been some adjustments in the United States over the past few years downward, 
That's due in part to COVID. We all saw some adjustments down because of COVID, but also these, what they call diseases of despair here, alcoholism, drug use, et cetera. So the United States is really lagging behind other countries as it relates to its overall increase in longevity. And because the United States is a complex nation, saying that conservatively, because we have such significant racial diversity and disparity, life expectancy isn't delivered evenly across groups. And I'm sure it's similar in Canada, at least with the European-born population and the native population. It's a similar gap here. And in African-American and things get quite muddy quite quickly in terms of who actually gets to live a long life. But this new book that I'm sketching right now goes past this demographic conversation, which I think is the most important, and overlays environmental, other geopolitical conversations into the mix. But one of the underlying themes is that things are actually a lot better than you think. And I'm afraid that because of our lunging from a news cycle, which was every night at 5 or 6 p.m. to every hour of the day, to every minute of every hour, to every second of every minute of every hour of every day, that we're so focused on getting the negative inputs in because it's really a survival mechanism to listen to negative news. It's more important that I know that there was a gun shooting a block away from my house than somebody saved a kitten from a tree at the end of my block So on the whole, we're progressing. There are forces, though, that are really nudging us in a direction where we're going to have to come together if we're going to survive. So that's if that's the nugget, that's the nugget. But it's it's being explored right now in a discourse that I hope to sell early next year to, you know, one of the major publishers. I hope I can get lucky again. I don't think luck has anything to do with it. I I think you've got a strong passion. I think you're a vivid visionary and I will be excited to follow along on that journey. Appreciate that. You've uh, been listening to Bradley Sherman and I'm, I'm changing things up this season in season three and I continue to get referred to the most amazing heart-centered leaders around the globe. And Bradley is the founder and CEO of Super Age. And he's got a new book out and we're still going to have fun. I'm going to put him on the spot and ask him some great leadership questions and some fun questions. So we're we're happy to welcome you back to our listenership for this season. And I just want to give a shout out to two special guests that I had on previously that I am so going to introduce to Bradley. And that's Dr. Michael Netsky and... He is currently living in Singapore and Helen Hirsch-Spence, who is in Toronto. And that's the beauty and the intersection for me being a heart-centered leader and the founder and host of this podcast is meeting people and and making those connections. So, well, and there's another guest. I'm, I'm telling you, there's such an intersection for me. We've hit the 200 mark of 200 leaders interviewed on this podcast. David Marlowe is another individual that I interviewed. And that is the foundation of his passion. And much like you, he left an executive role to pursue. And what's interesting to me is the millennials that I've had on the show, I feel that they've taught the baby boomers and and the Gen Zs a little bit more Mm. that we live in the moment and people think that, you know, they're part of the great resignation boom. And there's been so many conversations on this podcast about this exact topic. Yeah. 
they almost have some generational value from the 1950s. They get the work done. Mm -hmm. They're home for dinner with their spouse, their kids, but they're not necessarily nine to fivers. And I just, I find it so fascinating. And, and I love the way that you frame that and it is purpose, right? Yeah, it is. But let me share a little nugget from history for you here. Our labor environment today looks a lot more like the 1950s than it does the pre-pandemic years. And this is something that employers have missed time and time again. In 1950s America and post-war America, one out of two men over the age of 65 were engaged in the formal labor force. That's because we had witnessed 20 years of pretty significant population contraction just before the baby boom occurred. Now, when the baby boom occurred, that changed everything. That gave us a glut of cheap, affordable labor. So people were forced into competing for jobs. But in the 1950s, it was employers competing for workers, not the other way around. That's what we're going back to. That's what our future looks like. So individuals, young men and women who are entering the workforce today, as well as those of us that are older and still in it, get to enjoy this reality uh, for the foreseeable future because it doesn't turn around in five years. It doesn't turn around 10 years, 15 years, or even 20 years. We don't see it turning around anytime soon. And it's history repeating itself. It's so interesting. Exactly. That could be a whole podcast for you and I separate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in the 1950s, that was, at least in terms of salaries, the closest we've ever been in terms of egalitarian salaries, egalitarian living. Obviously, people were left behind. People are always left behind in every period. And during that period in particular, it was very much focused on race and gender. But that's the closest we came to being connected to being kind of on the same page. We're going to move towards that very quickly in this new era. Very interesting. Now, my second question has permanent residence on the show. It uh, depicts the name of the show and it always brings a good conversation and a lot of laughter. Mm -hmm. Share with us what imperfections Bradley brings to his heart-centered leadership. Uh, I don't have patience. That has always been my greatest fault is that I lack the patience that is sometimes necessary to move things forward. And when you become a leader within your own enterprise, you need to learn how to temper that very quickly. You also need to learn very quickly how to not sweat the small stuff and really focus on the things that you can only truly control. Because if you focus on the things that you can't, Somebody else got an award. Somebody else got a contract. You can't get a client to give you a call back. If you only focus on those things and not your regular outputs, you're dead in the water. And I learned that very quickly going into this. So patience was that one virtue that I had to recalibrate and recenter and actually move front and forward so that I could be the leader that I am today and enjoy some of the successes that I've earned today. Well, I will tell you, you are in great company on the podcast, and that is the number one imperfection that people have shared. Really? (laughs) And it's mine too. I've been an entrepreneur for 32 years, and I think because we are our own innovator, we're vivid visionaries, we're resilient, we, you know, we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and, you know, embrace grit and do things that others won't do. And fear just has no place in our mindset, in our habits of thinking. And I think patience sometimes 
it kind of gets muddy because we get excited of the possibility and the and the limitless opportunities. And we have to kind of do that self-audit and talk to ourselves and say, okay, this is great, but you need some routine and structure here and, and we need to bring it down a notch. So it's really nice to hear from your level that you experience the same. And, and I think entrepreneurs, I think we're all cut from the same cloth for sure. Yeah. And we have to learn. I mean, I had to learn to put guardrails on myself because within a large corporation, people put guardrails on you. And that's through a series of complex checks and balances that approve or deny projects going forward. And I saw plenty approved and plenty not. But it wasn't until I was doing it on my own that I really saw that I needed to make those decisions because they were about survival of the business at the end of the day. It's amazing how the tides turn when you're on your own. Oh, absolutely. Okay, my third question is, share something with us that you've learned about yourself since the beginning of 2020. Oh my. Um, <laughs> the first and foremost is, is that I'm better predicting the future than I realized. I've always had vision for what's to come, but it wasn't until 2020 that I realized how clear that was. And, and let me tell you why. It was January of 2020 when I picked up the phone and called my mom and said, you need to get out there and pick up some masks and a couple weeks of food just to have, just in case. Went to sell my book in New York City. The first stories of the pandemic were, were starting to filter out. And I said to my publisher, HarperCollins, who published The Super Age, they said, tell us one thing that nobody else knows right now. And I said, this is the big one. This is the big one. I said, we're going to live with this for the next couple of years. And then and my publisher at the time said, uh, that's quite the predication. And I said, yeah, I know, but the data suggests that this is actually it. And lo and behold, two years plus after pandemic, two years and nine months, essentially, we were very right about those predictions, me and the team. And throughout the pandemic, we were able to share with our clients what they could expect and the labor market really became the one driver that we were really able to give the most insight to our clients on because we were able to say, listen, this is changing rapidly. You're firing too many older workers. I understand that your budget may demand it, but you're firing way too many older workers. It's going to be harder to get them back. And there just aren't enough younger workers out there. Generation Z is sizably smaller than the millennial generation, sizably smaller. So when we come out of this, and we will come out of this, you're going to be struggling. Well, you know, <laughs> people don't like to listen to that kind of predication because it goes contrary to what they've experienced their entire lives, which is a robust, readily available, and cheap labor market. A few of our clients picked up on it, and they're doing incredibly well. Those that didn't are struggling still because they can't turn their mindset around to what reality actually is. The other piece that we saw that, that I believe is, is really going to drive both United States, Canada, and other nations forward is a focus on inclusion that goes past DEI strategies that are currently being implemented by corporations. It goes past race, it goes past gender, it goes past sexual identity, gender identity. It goes to age diversity, which we know companies compete better on, and it increases the visibility of disability within space. So in just a few weeks' time, we're launching this uh, super age-inclusive design, said for short, which is a platform where organizations and individuals can get certified for how they build their space. 
because we're leaving behind 20 to 25% of the marketplace of workers, of consumers. And that number is only going to continue to grow as our society gets older. So we are able to predict the future now in ways that we are very confident in. And the pandemic really forced us into that because it made us make calls that we've been kind of maybe hem-hawing around before. Now we can be very clear and very direct with our predictions because we know what the future looks like. So this is this is something that's quite funny. There's another person I'm going to introduce you to that was on the show. His name is Michael Bach. Fabulous, fabulous consultant, coach, author. He is in the diversity, equality, and inclusion space. It's just going to be such a great conversation between the two of you. Great. But you actually just answered my last question because I, I was going to ask you about the demographic change and how it's impacting the role of leaders. And so you, you won up to me and, and got to it before I even asked you. But anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that people look at demographics typically from a national perspective or a regional perspective, and that's that's foolish. People need to look at demographic realities from the regions in which they sit, the cities, the states, the towns, because they are vastly different. So if you go into the countryside, you're going to find a vastly older population than you do within cities. There are areas within the United States, there are areas within Canada that look a lot less like Toronto or New York City and look a lot more like Tokyo or its outskirts. So it's very important that business leaders, in particular, business leaders that might sit in the Midwest, uh, business leaders that might sit up in Nova Scotia, for example, take very clear assessments of their workforce, as well as the predictions for their demographic future. And we can help with that, mind you, so that they have a better sense of what's to come for their workforces of the future, but also for the consumer basis. You know, if you're selling products and services and key components of your products cannot be sold anymore because the population is quite literally going away, either migrating or dying off, you don't have a very strong future as a company. One of the pieces of data that came out this week that I think really illustrate just how significant the shifts have been here in the United States, certainly during COVID, the number of applications for mortician jobs have jumped by 24%. For the schooling that, that individuals take to become a funeral director has jumped by 24%. Now, why is that? Well, we are predicting now through the U.S. government, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that funeral directors and the funeral industry jobs will grow by 8% year on year for the next 20 or 30 years. That's faster than most industries in this country. So demographics bring about weird change. You know, I, I point out the statistic quite often that, you know, about 10 years ago, Japan ended up producing more diapers or adult incontinence products, as, as the industry likes to call them, than diapers for babies. So the new demographic reality changes a lot of what we've expected to be true. It turns many of our realities upside down. And if you're willing to pay attention to it, you see it everywhere. You see it in your workforce, you see it in your daily life, you see it in the way the products and services are coming out. You see it in what happened in the Emmys last night where multiple women over 50, two over 60 won Best Actress Nots. Mm -hmm. That would be unheard of 10 years ago. So 
the future is coming very quickly. The super age arise for the United States and Canada in just a few short years. We'll join 33 other economies worldwide in this new era where one out of five people or over the age of 65, and it's going to be awesome. But business has to be ready for it. Businesses has to pivot today to be ready for tomorrow. Well, it's it's such great insight and wisdom. And, you know, one of my favorite sentences is data doesn't lie. Yes, and demographics drive a lot of what we do. Absolutely. So when you have this data at your back, and it's data that is literally updated annually, sometimes even faster than that, we have a very clear picture of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Birth rates year on year continue to decline. We are really at the lowest point that we've ever been. There was a modest increase uh, in 2021 over 2020 in the U.S., hardly hardly noticeable. Nationwide, deaths outstrip births in three quarters of the counties in the United States. So we're not talking about the population just getting older. We're talking about the population fundamentally changing. Absolutely. So paying attention to those things really gives your business a leverage point. And it allows you to think about not just profit making, but also really impacting people's lives. And I believe for most industries, whether it be product or service industries, that frontier really lies within the home. Since so many people want to stay at home, we want to live out our our final days in our homes we're talking 80, 90% of the population has this aspirational goal. Most of our homes aren't ready for us to be old. So how do we make the modifications to these homes necessary? Well, we're already seeing the major manufacturers of toilets, uh, bathroom products, et cetera, turning things around, making comfort height seats, seats that lift for themselves, lighting that turns on when you get up out of bed. We help people figure that out in a way that makes sense that's not too scary. And we look at the future as, yeah, it might be gray, but it's very bright. If we turn around today, if we make those minor modifications, we look at segmentation specifically around individuals as fluid. And we used to have a three-stage life, then we moved to a five-stage life. That five-stage life was childhood, adolescence, adulthood, retirement, and then old age. Today, we're moving to a seven-stage life, in my opinion. Um, The one that we really focus on is this middle plus years, that time that sits between classic middle age, which is 45 to 65, and really true retirement. These individuals are higher net worth. They have a much more intimate interest in their future and their well-being. They're connected to work. They're active consumers. They're digitally literate. This customer group is the one that is the sweet spot for nearly every enterprise. And until businesses realize that 65 isn't old anymore for a growing number of people, they're not going to be able to get to them. But I'll tell you what, businesses like Apple have already figured it out. Oh, yes. I was just going to say that to you. Where We are so aligned here. Yes. You know what's funny is I did my first schooling in architectural design. Yeah. And I'm left-handed and I, you know, I use the drafting board and I'd smear through my work and then AutoCAD came out. But here's the sweet spot that you talk about purpose and intention and, and how we have this life story of buildable, transferable skills. Mm-hmm. I landed up going back to school, did my undergrad in disability management, and I worked with catastrophically injured children and adults. 
Mm -hmm. And what did I do? I worked with the occupational therapist because when they had to come back to a conducive environment, it always had to be modified. Nobody plans for this. So when I built my home with my husband, our second home, kind of our last home, I said, we're going to build this home so that we can age in place. Yeah. So we're ready. We're we're one level, wider doors. And because I said to him, this will allow us to sustain who we are from a physical perspective and not have to modify things. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me that even though now I'm coaching the, you know, the girl that did the architectural design and the case manager, all of that comes into who we are today. Like I could sit here and talk to you all day because there's so many intersections that you and I have, but it's only a 30 minute podcast. So we got, we got to move into the fun part. Yes, let's do it. Okay, this is my Fab Four. I'm going to ask you four questions. Okay. And I don't want you to think. Just give me the answer sitting on top of mine. All right. If I asked your family or your friends to describe Bradley in one word, what is it? Stubborn. See, it's right there. Yeah. Favorite book and author and why is it your favorite book? Mm. Now that one's hard. You know, I'd love to say mine, but that wouldn't be very fair, would it? I mean, Catcher in the Rye always comes to mind, but Travels with Charlie is the one that sticks out probably the most from my childhood and something that I'd like to do someday, travel across the country and really understand what America is. I'm still gonna give you a a digital high five here because I love that you said that you love your book. (laughs) You laugh about stubbornness, but to me, when you say that, and I'm seeing your face and our listeners aren't, I love the confidence because you've created your purpose in your book and now there's another one coming. So you've opened the floodgates to, you know, share your intellect and brilliance with the world. So you're allowed to say your own book. Well, yeah. And I tell you, there's nothing more flattering than when people agree with you. And it's nice, you know, hearing from, you know, the head of Dow Jones or the head of the NCOA or any number of um, Fortune 500 companies that the book transformed their thinking. So yeah, it's not my favorite book, but I it's top of my list. <laughs> and you wanted to be on my podcast. So how honored am I? I did. I did. Okay, third question. I am going to arrange dinner for you mm-hmm. with your favorite leader. Now, you're allowed to think about this because the leader could be living or it could be someone in our history who's passed away. Right. Who are you having dinner with and what's the dinner conversation? You know, I think from an American perspective, I don't have to think about this too hard. From a historical American perspective, I I think any one of the founding fathers, certainly any one of the ones that wrote the Federalist Papers are probably the most top of mind right now. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what the Federalist Papers are, they were written by a number of the founding fathers to, in an anonymous pen, mind you, to suggest some of the greatest challenges that our constitution and our representative democracy would bring to the country. And perhaps one of the more interesting Federalist Papers revolves around the rise of partisanship, the growth and the dangers of the two-party system, and what could happen if we weren't unified under kind of secular political religion, which is essentially what American democracy is. And lo and behold, these are the challenges that we're dealing with today. So as we come together, as we try to bring ourselves back together in the future, I'd love to just chat with these guys 
and say, you were right, but why did you know that we were going to pull ourselves in this direction when we were a very agrarian society and now we're very an urban and service-driven sector society? How did you know this was coming? That's something I want to know. Well, they might look back at you across the table. You know, we're having some fun here and say, how did you know we were ready to hit a global pandemic? You share that that insight and that vivid visionary that we talked about. It's a gift. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess that's maybe what draw, pulls me to them is that, that they were some of our first futurists. And futurism is, you know, it's not a perfect science by any stretch of the imagination, but there's different varying degrees of futurism that I think have greater resonance a demographic futurism where you have hard data behind you, where you take a look at historical, you know, precedent that has a lot more weight than just saying, well, I think in the next five years, we're going to be on the moon again. That doesn't jive completely with me, but if you're able to pull data and support your arguments, it certainly does. Well, this has been so much fun for me. And before I ask you my last question. I just want to say I'm so glad our paths cross. Yes, this is great. This will not be our last conversation. You're stuck with me for life. That's part of the deal when you come on the show. I hope you promised that. <laughs> I do. And I have four people to introduce you to, which I'm delighted. And that, that's the part of the podcast that I love because to me, my definition of heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And that doesn't mean any presence of transaction or reciprocity. It's it's a fun conversation about so many things like we've done today. So Agreed. from the bottom of my grateful heart, thank you for your time today. It was really a pleasure. And I'm going to ask you to finish this sentence and close okay. out the show. All right. Heart-centered leadership is? Aligning mission with money. Understanding that you can do good in the world you can change the lives of the people you serve, both as your employees, as well as your customers by meeting them where they are. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.